Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to talk about that word pastor. We're convicted that the scripture is God's word, and so we work our way through scripture. We talk about what's next in the text, and 1 Peter 5 starts talking about the concept of a pastor. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen. We'd love to give you a copy on the way out in a modern English translation. And while you're flipping there, I love the clapping in that song, but I know if you're a guest... That was tricky. There wasn't a lot of clapping until there was a very specific set of loud claps, and then you have to wait, and then you're expecting after the third one four more, but no. (laughs) And it's hard here because Kelsey's moving and grooving. You can't always trust her to hit you on the claps because she's on a whole different level. If you look at me, I'm way off. I'm not a good guide. I'm feeling it, but I'm not rhythmic. Uh, David generally is a pretty good guide if you can see him. But uh, yeah, I apologize, and I don't. You know, that was a good song, and we're feeling it. The whole concept of this music is not just that it sounds good. We want to instruct your affections. Now, that's like Protestant uh, Puritan talk for we want, to, we want to teach your emotions. We want you to feel how you're supposed to feel when you sing those words, when you preach that truth to yourself. And um, yeah. You can get some weird claps in there. Just enjoy it. You know, try not to get too bent out of shape. All right. First Peter chapter five talks about this concept of pastors. And in this series on first Peter, we talked about what he's talked about. And he's talked a lot about authority and submission. That's a hard thing. Kind of the concept of America is that every man's a king. We have this difficulty. You take it out of just our context as a country. The scripture is very clear that human sin is all wrapped up in this idea of pride. The idea that I decide who I am. I decide what I want. I decide what I'll do. Well, no. Biblically, we we run into this concept of, of God. God's in charge. And he gets to decide how his church operates. And he has this, this group, this, this office. And it's called different things in different parts of the New Testament, but it's clear throughout the New Testament it's talking about the same office, this idea of a shepherd, a pastor, the idea of an, an elder, an overseer. And here's what Peter talks about for this pastor. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Man, that's such a heavy sentence. We're going to take that apart. But Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, whenever I read this stuff, in order to prepare to to teach it, 
My number one job is to understand it and to submit to whatever it says. But kind of my number two job is to think about with you what's hard about this. What's sweet about it? What's the thing that's going to be challenging and what's the thing that's the big blessing here? What's the question that this is answering? And the question that I have, and it, I think it flows through the rest of this chapter and even through the whole book of 1 Peter, is how do you do it willingly? Now, you're not going to believe this, but pastoring, even at Hope Church, is hard. And you, you're like, no, we're so perfect. How could pastoring Hope Church be anything but a delight daily. Well, ah, yeah, maybe it's me, but it's not always easy. It's not easy to lead adults. I mean, if you have a job, it's hard for your boss to lead you and he pays you. It's hard to lead a group of like volunteers. That's not what we are. We're brothers and sisters. We have a head shepherd and he puts these little under shepherds in charge. I mean, this is what we're reading. But that's not how most people walk in here. A lot of times when you come into church, you walk in as though you're gracing us with your presence. And I do appreciate you being here. I get thrilled. That's part of why I jump in there to help greet all the time. It's because I get excited when the door opens again and again and again. I want you to come. We're very excited that you're here. But we don't really admit the authority that God puts in his church. And it makes it something hard. It's hard in general, but it makes it something hard. This guy, Peter, is saying that other pastors, elders, should do what they do, not under compulsion, but willingly. He then says, eagerly. It is true that I do not wake up every morning pinching myself that I'm still allowed to be a pastor at Hope Church. I should. It's saying eagerly. But that's uphill for me. This process is difficult. There are many other fun things that I could be doing with myself. I mean, I've set my pay. I mean, I'm very happy with everything. We've got enough to feed our kids and keep clothes on them and live a normal life here in Utah. But I think I could probably even get paid better somewhere else. Why is it that we stay? Why is it that we shepherd? It says here that you're supposed to, as a pastor, it says in 2 Timothy 4. So Timothy is, we call them the pastoral epistles. It's a part of the New Testament that's written by Paul to pastors, both Timothy and Titus. And they can stand in for pastors throughout the ages. And he tells pastors, preach the word, be ready, in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. You understand the tightrope you're supposed to walk as a pastor. You're supposed to reprove. That word means to reprimand or scold. How many of your adult relationships involve that? It says rebuke. That is to show sharp disapproval when needed. And to exhort. And you think exhort. That's like, hey, good job, buddy. You know, you just encourage. I love, I love that. 
That's like what I do well. That's what is easy for me. But it says to strongly encourage. So instead of like, hey, good job, buddy. It's more like, come on, get to work, buddy. That's not as much fun. People don't pick up and answer your phone calls if that was the last phone call. Man, if I'm a pastor and I want to just do the stuff that's fun, I would do the entertaining stuff, like the stuff where I get to say things that I think you will respond to. It would be the stuff where I'm a consultant. You call me when you've got a problem, and I I dispense my wisdom as like kind of the wise man on the mountain. And I would love to do it like a consultant does, where you just walk in, they tell you the problem, you tell them the answer, you get a little something-something, and then you walk out, and they have to deal with how to implement that advice. But that's not here. He says you exhort with complete patience and teaching. You've got to stay there for the long haul. You've got to walk with somebody through the train wreck that is this last thing that they just did, this last decision they just made, this pattern that's going on in their life. How do I do that eagerly? Here's the encouragement and kind of the, I don't know, the sad part, the difficult part. The perspective change that we need to take on this is not that let's, let's just make a church where everybody's having a good time, everybody takes marginal steps in godliness, and, and maybe, you know, we have some level of, of impact on the community. We're talking about something that is extremely serious. The church and your role in it is not a game. Peter starts this passage with the word so, referring to what he just talked about. What did he just talk about? Well, at the end of chapter 4 he said, It's time for judgment to begin. At the household of God. And if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We talked about that last verse last week, but we didn't get into the judgment piece as much. Part of it is, you know, your appetite's about half an hour. So I got to do what I can in about half an hour. And you just can only say so much. But part of it is we can talk about it this week. We're playing with live ammo. Judgment is coming, and it starts at the household of God. He's referencing Ezekiel. He's referencing God's judgment on the people of Israel. In the New Testament now, we are those that are called by His name. We are those that are being grafted into the plant. We are those who hold the same office as those who received this reprimand from God through Ezekiel. The judgment is coming. We are not allowed to just have fun and play and do whatever you want. We're playing on a street. A car could come. Judgment is coming. We're not allowed to just be silly about this. We have to really go for it. How do you pastor well when you have to... You have to be the one to be the good guy and the bad guy. How do you keep going? How do you get excited about it? How do you do it eagerly? Well, I want to just say that, that you have the same task. 
He doesn't just stop with pastors. He says in verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Being sober-minded, being watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but what Peter does is he describes himself, and he describes elders, and he describes all of us going through this same process of humbling yourself, enduring suffering, and then being exalted. If you are uh, willing to to take that first step in humbling yourself, you then enter this period of sanctification. You just enter this period of suffering. That's where we are right now. He's encouraging pastors to continue and to continue eagerly through that suffering because there's an exaltation. He's encouraging you to embrace the humility, endure the suffering with an eye towards that exaltation. If we're going to keep doing this, if we're all going to buy in together to the system that God's built, which involves pastors who have some level of integrity and some level of impact on your life beyond just presenting sort of a Sunday morning experience, You engaging with one another, embracing the gifts that God's given you, and expressing them, serving one another with them. Humility and suffering with an eye towards exaltation. It's the same move. So let's look at it a little bit more. He says for pastors, we're supposed to shepherd the flock of God that's among us, exercising oversight. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He's saying that we are to shepherd. We are to exercise oversight. You know, the the way that churches are governed differs across different traditions. At Hope Church, we are rigorous about being biblical. Our goal is not to fall into or follow blindly some tradition. If by tradition you mean just a way it's always been. If by tradition you mean thousands of years of Holy Spirit-guided wisdom, well, yeah, we're interested. And so we do. We follow along in a tradition. But where that tradition bumps up against Bible, we're always going to choose Bible. And biblically, we are a group of people who is to follow Christ and his structure for the church, which involves these shepherds who do exercise oversight. The pastors at Hope Church are David and myself, and we will lead. Why? Pride? I hope not. Bible. He tells us to do it, to exercise oversight. 
tells us not to do it under compulsion, but willingly. With, we endure this suffering with that eye towards what is to be. Not shameful gain, but he does talk about this cross, this unfading crown that is given to those that endure. He says the same to you and to me. Outside of the role of shepherd, we are all to have that humility that takes the crown off our head, gives it back to God and says, God, you're God and I'm not. So I'm going to lower myself down and accept your system, your rule. I'm going to war against the part of me that continues to rebel against your commands. That's humbling yourself. And there's all kinds of good that comes out of it. We're going to have several uh, weeks in the Psalms coming up where we're going to be able to engage more with this concept of anxiety. And so I've got to be careful with my time today. But, but you have all this incredible blessing that comes with humility. And yet submitting yourself to God's system, enlisting in His people, involves the suffering that He allows for His people. With this concept... That in humbling yourself and serving and going low, there's a moment where he takes you high. There's an exaltation. And if we're going to do this, if we're going to continue in this, we've got to get good at looking at that exaltation. So how do we do it? I think we have a hard time with this because we're not really sure how to both be humble and exalted. Those are opposites. How does it go together? Here's how I think of it. When I want to zone out, there's a couple of things I do, but one of them is YouTube videos where somebody shows themselves doing woodworking projects. I don't want to do woodworking projects. I want to watch somebody else do woodworking projects while I sit still with a glass of ice water. That's how I want to zone out. And my favorites are the one where they do projects on a lathe. You know what a lathe is? Okay, I'll tell you. It is a thing that rapidly spins a thing. So it's a machine, it's got two little clamps, and they've got a million different kinds of clamps and yada yada, but it clamps together a something, usually a piece of wood, and then it spins the wood really, really fast. And the artist will take this uh, arm and lock it into place, this metal arm, and then he'll use a million different tools, gouges and, and all kinds of different cutting implements to, to push into the spinning piece of wood and shape it. And because it's spinning, you're able to shape the whole of the piece of wood in along the same sort of movement. And they're able to create these incredible, you make bowls and cups and these beautiful like furniture legs. My grandfather was a cherry furniture builder for decades. And the legs on all that furniture have got these really elegant kind of movement and curves. They do that on a lathe. And I love to watch the process. It's usually like time-lapsed, right? So it's about a 20-minute thing where for the guy, who knows, 10 years, I don't know how long it takes him to do it, but you just watch it and then you're satisfied and you move on to the next thing. But they go through and they take something that is rough. And I think a lot of times the artist enjoys taking something that nobody else can use. They may take a burr, a burl, a piece of knotted-up craggly wood. They'll take something that was just the excess from another project. And then they'll submit it to all these processes 
They're going to grind it, and they're going to gouge it, and they're going to maybe fill the whole thing with this epoxy, this sort of like melted plastic that hardens and that they can then use. And they'll have to fill it with different stuff. But before that, they've got to pressurize it so all the bubbles come out. So they put it in this vacuum. And then when the, pressure, the bubbles come up, they use a torch and knock out all those bubbles. Now, again, the end product is magnificent. It's a piece of art. But the process for that wood... It was rough. If you think of it, if you were the wood, it's rough. You ever walk into Home Depot, one of the most fun places to go is the big tool aisle. And if you're a homeowner, you start running through in your head, like, maybe I do need all of this stuff. Like, maybe there's going to be a reason for me to need it. I probably should buy it now for before the thing happens. And you just start, and of course you can, or your wife says, but you want everything in there because it's so cool. And you just imagine what you could make, what you could shape, what you could produce or build with these crazy different things that grind and cut and solder. And from the perspective of the artist, all of these things have a use. From the perspective of the wood, Home Depot is like a torture chamber. Right? Like if you had your giant piece of wood on a cart and you were taking it through Home Depot and it was looking up at all of these things that you could use to take it apart and grind it and break it and burn it. Oh. But it doesn't understand. You're taking it from something that's useless, that is fit for nothing but to be burnt. And you're transforming it into something that sits on a pedestal into something that's treasured and lit in a very specific way so that the people who walk by can see to their greatest advantage the beauty of the thing created. You have to have your eye on the exaltation if you're going to endure the suffering, if you're going to continue to choose the humiliation of giving up what it is to be God in your own eyes and choosing God to be God before you to bow the knee to the Heavenly Father and choose instead His process daily. Then exaltation. The way you're going to do that is to keep your eyes on that exaltation. But the way that I want you to, to, to think of it, to see it, is, yeah, that art project. But we have... Examples biblically, too. Peter puts himself forward. He's, he's doing what Paul does in, in Philippians when we went through Philippians. And he was talking about himself as an example, but also Timothy, but also Epaphroditus, but also Christ. That there is this idea of an example that's being given to you. Your pastors are being given to you as an example, but it's an example of something you're supposed to be doing. It's an example that we get from people like Peter and all of us together get from Christ. It's the movement that no one's exempt from, this idea of humility, suffering, and then exaltation. And Peter describes himself going through that same process. When Peter begins this, he doesn't call himself an apostle. He starts the letter that way to underline his authority. But when he's trying to show you what it's like to be a pastor, he starts by saying, I, a fellow elder. He doesn't pull rank here. Instead, he slips in among the enlisted and says, yeah, us together as elders He calls himself a witness to Christ's suffering. And if you remember Christ's suffering, Peter has a lot to be ashamed of in that process. Peter was one of Jesus' 12 followers, so that during his ministry, he 
He was groomed. He was set apart as somebody who was going to be Jesus' follower and a leader in the kingdom that Jesus was going to be bringing. And yet Jesus said time and again that this was going to be an upside-down kingdom. This is going to be a kingdom where leaders had to serve. This is going to be a kingdom where those that are suffering are actually blessed. And when it came time for Jesus to be exalted, he explained time and again that the Son of Man was going to be hung on a cross. He was going to be put in a grave. That there was humiliation and that there was suffering before there would be glory. And yet when the time came for that suffering... Peter, who blustered that he would never betray Christ, betrayed him three times. And after the third, Christ prophesying that this would happen, after the third of those betrayals, Jesus makes eye contact with Peter. Ripped up, bloody Jesus, scourged Jesus, makes eye contact with Peter. Peter goes away and weeps. He's just a broken man. Peter was a witness to Christ's sufferings. If you, like me, look at any of this stuff that's being commanded here and you feel overwhelmed by it, take some comfort in the example we have in Peter. This process is being described, this suffering that's being prescribed, this exaltation that's being promised. Peter is your example in this. Peter's not good. He's definitely not perfect. He's not even good. He's bad. He's a bad follower. As a bad follower of Christ, I'm encouraged by this. He says that. He comes among us as an elder, not an apostle. He reminds us of what it was when Christ suffered, but he also reminds us that he was a witness to Christ's glory. Peter talks about seeing Christ's glory, and that is seeing the risen Christ, but it's also, I think, referencing the transfiguration. There's a story in the Gospels that Jesus took three of his leaders, so not even the twelve, but just a group of three, and he, he went away and he's transformed before them. He goes from being a Jewish man to something like what he's like in his exalted state as he is before God. Peter witnessed this, this power, this thing that would be. Peter got to see for a second that exaltation moment. So Peter was living his life, but he was living his life with this very great understanding of both depth and height. He understood why he really wasn't fit to be God. Why humbling himself, God must increase, I must decrease, as John the Baptist said. Peter understood why he needed to go lower. Left to his own devices, he betrayed Christ. But he also knows what will be one day. Peter has also seen this exaltation that is to take place. How is it that Christianity preaches both things? Humiliation and exaltation. How is it that Christianity preaches that you're going to go low, that you see yourself as God sees you, which is as a sinner, somebody who has broken his law time and again, somebody who, and this is what God says about all of humanity, Every intention of their heart is always wicked. He says that after the flood, after the punishment, he still looks out on those who should have had some effect from this punishment. He still says it. Every intention of their heart is always evil. How do you match that with transfiguration? How do you match that with the glory that is to be revealed with exaltation? How do those things go together? Well, Jesus... 
<laughs> Jesus! Peter is such a good picture of this. Jesus is going through and he is suffering. He's not only beaten, but he's hung on a cross. He's not only painfully uh, enduring torture physically. He's enduring the full wrath of God. He's drinking to the dregs the whole cup of the wrath of God. So much so that he cries out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, God treats Christ the way God should treat Peter. God can't say this to Christ, but he could say to Peter, because you've forsaken me. When push came to shove, you chose yourself over me. And instead of Peter enduring that wrath, Christ does. Christ goes down to death, accepting Peter's punishment. And then Christ rises up from the grave. He goes through that suffering into this exaltation. And he takes Peter with him. What happens at the end of John? This is so crazy. It's one of the reasons, I think, that John is inserted where it is in the order of books in the New Testament. But at the end of John, Jesus speaks to Peter after the resurrection, after Peter's betrayal. And he says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Peter says what we would say. Yes, Lord. I love you. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He's hurt. Why are you asking me again? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? And he's, I hope at this moment, starting to understand why there's a three here. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Three times Peter denies Christ, and these three times Jesus has taken that away. And what's he giving him back? He's not just giving him himself. He's giving him this, this role. He's giving him this crown. He's telling him to go and to be this leader, to feed, to shepherd. He's showing him. He's, he's giving him just this little bit of a taste of this exaltation. When Jesus shows himself in his glory, he's bringing people with him. At the transfiguration, when Jesus shows himself in his glory, do you know who else was there? There's Peter and those two other disciples, and you know, their knees are knocking and their faces, jaws dropped, and they don't know what's happening. But they also see Elijah and Moses in glory. There's another picture of Jesus in glory. It's not just Jesus, the, the shepherd, who's then killed and rises up from the grave. We have this picture at the end of Revelation of Jesus riding back in on a white horse, triumphant in his glory. And that picture, do you know who's behind him? The armies of heaven riding right alongside. That's the point of Christianity. It's not that you're good. You're not. You should accept that humiliation. You should go through that suffering. The point of Christianity is that Christ has endured the fullness of that humiliation, the fullness of that suffering, and been exalted to a name that is higher than any other name, so that those who call on Him can go through that same thing. Except, He's now paid the price. You can be given. You can, you can take your punishment and give it to Christ and then take his reward upon yourself. That's what he came to do. That's what he's come to be for us. 
That's why it says in Philippians, being found in human form, Christ humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, suffering, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen. Yes. Christianity, whether it's in the specific role of being a pastor or in the role of being part of this kingdom of priests whose job it is to serve one another, to love, to show hospitality without grumbling, to go out into the world and proclaim him in the highways and the hedges. Whatever your role within this faith walk is, you will be required to have that humility that says, God's God, not me. You will be, for a little while, if necessary, engaged in some suffering, some sanctification. But you're also called, <laughs> you're also called to be with him in this glory, in this exaltation. Don't you want that? The judgment's coming. There's one way out. Don't you want that? I pray that you do. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask in this moment that you would give us the grace to see you a little bit more as you are. That we would have the grace to throw our crowns at your feet, to bow down and say, okay, I'm going to give up my little nothing life to be called up into your perfect, exalted life. I'm I'm going to give up who I am in humility, Father, I'm going to admit that you're God over me and that there's even people that you put in authority over me. Whatever that means and and engaging in that together, humbly seeking out what that looks like with patience and gentleness. But I'm going to endure that humility, Father, and then I'm going to endure some suffering, trusting you as an artist who is making something glorious, not for its own sake, but that glory may go back to the artist. That in seeing us, Lord, the world will see you. (laughs) For our good, Lord, but also for your glory. We pray these things that they would happen and that they would be all over Hope Church, Lord. For your glory and our good. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.